The leaders of the world's largest carbon-emitting countries are being urged to walk the talk at the 27th United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP27, which kicks off on Sunday in Sham el-Sheikh, Egypt. But despite all of the scientific evidence pointing to a catastrophic climate future under business-usual scenario, countries are still failing to meet their commitments under the Paris Climate Agreement to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius. Final Funor reports. Pacific Island leaders heading to Egypt have for months been voicing complaints about lackluster efforts from developed nations to lower fossil fuel emissions and meet climate financing commitments. A former executive director of Palau's Ministry of Infrastructure, Tu T. Shilton, who consulted previous COPs on climate change, says there's widespread frustration and pessimism with COP meetings. I don't want to waste my time talking in, in Egypt, talking about what's already happening on my island. We're already way too late. I, I, my personal opinion is we're way too late, and we are not getting the technology we need to do adaptation. We spend so much time on mitigation, believing that it will help, and I just don't see that it happening right now. It's a sentiment shared by many climate activists. India Logan Riley, a senior member of New Zealand Action Station, says very few governments have fulfilled climate pledges that were made at previous conferences. Climate talks are an interesting space because pledges are made, but then it's really what happens back home in, in those countries that makes the difference. And we already know that many governments, including New Zealand, aren't going to hit their targets based on current solutions that are being funded or current pathways of action that are being taken. However, there is optimism over the increased size and diversity of delegations to COP27. Delegates from 190 countries, including hundreds of climate activists and 90 heads of states are expected, the highest number ever to attend a COP meeting. Tonga Meteorological Services Deputy Director Laitia Fifita says the head of his department is attending to share data on Tonga's climate, which has seen the experience of three devastating cyclones in the last decade alone, including two Category 5 cyclones, Ian in 2014 and Gita in 2017. Um, Not only um, our director is attending this meeting, but also the, the head of government, also the the king and the queen are also attending. So as you can see, it's a nationwide approach taking relevant issues and messages uh, regarding climate and its impacts in small island developing states, including Tonga. But it's not just the Pacific Islands that have suffered extreme climate events. But it's not just the Pacific Islands that have suffered from extreme climate events. This year has seen heat waves causing severe droughts in much of the Northern Hemisphere. Temperatures in London rose to over 40 degrees Celsius, the highest ever recorded. In Baghdad, temperatures soared to over 60 degrees Celsius. And across the United States, wildfires scorched over 28,000 square kilometers of land. Tuti Shilton says COP has failed to deliver because there are too many who deny climate change is real. I think we need to stop using the word global warming. I think we need to use the global crisis, climate emergency, getting people to realize this is not something that is not going to happen. It is going to happen. And because of the scale of the economy in the Pacific, we are always going to be the one 
receiving the brunt of the climate crisis, and we're always going to be the last to get the technology to address those things. COP27 commences on Sunday the 6th of November and will run until Friday the 18th. Still on COP27, all eyes are on world leaders to hold up their end of the bargain and bring the discussion of climate compensation to the table. Last year's climate talks ended in acrimony between rich and developing countries over cash for loss and damage. But this topic has yet again failed to make the agenda. Pacific leaders, however, remain steadfast in their plight to have their voices heard and will still lobby for discussions on accountability. To better understand the loss and damage finance, RNZ reporter Hamish Cardwell spoke with University of Canterbury professor Stephen Ratuva, who explains the Pacific's position. Tell me, going into this conference, it started, there started to be discussions about serious efforts by countries to get lost and damaged, to get money from rich countries to the developing world. I just wondered if you could kind of explain roughly, you know, there's a couple of different levels eh, and different pots of money. If you just kind of sketch broadly what those pots are and who's asking for money. Yeah, basically the loss and damage has been one of the big issues in the Pacific. Um, the loss and damage has to do with a whole lot of things. Uh, that is one of the big uh, issues and being able to identify what those things are. Uh, one is infrastructure. Another one has to do with issues of well-being, like housing uh, and health and all those, uh, and, and uh, also the environment on which they they live, uh, in terms of protecting their shoreline against uh, uh, waves and big uh, natural calamities, and uh, also something which is not been talked about is to do with uh, social and cultural and psychological and intellectual loss and damage, uh, which is much more implicit, much more subtle in a lot of cases, and much more indirect. But it's long-term. You can fix a seawall. You, you can fix houses. But the impact on people, particularly the, uh, uh, the long-term trauma, there's been a lot of research done on the uh, trauma which people experience during extreme calamities. Uh, research done in the United States on slavery and how that becomes generational, intergenerational. Uh, and recently, the big, uh, you know, category five cyclones in Fiji, for instance, people are still traumatized. And the trauma, uh, according to research, actually is not just psychological, it also um, puts stress on, the, uh, on people's biology and gives rise to genetic transformation, which can then be uh, inherited through generations. So trauma can be a long term. And that's something which uh, then can lead to all kinds of social issues later on. So it's just not just the climate that you're worrying about, it's the long term uh, impact on human society. So uh, yeah, uh, the, the, the climate finance, there are different kinds of climate financing takes place. Uh, you have the, uh, the Green Climate uh, Fund, uh, which is a big one. And part of the problem with the funding has to do with different levels. One is the gap between what countries have committed, at least verbally, and um, and whether the money actually is being delivered. Um, the $100 billion never eventuated in terms of the full amount being paid for all kinds of reasons. And also, a lot of that money does not really trickle down to communities. When money comes from the international organization like the UNFCCC, part of the process is 
data that uh, designated international organizations like the Euro Bank or the Asian Development Bank are the ones who who can identify as the uh, implementing agencies. It's as if the local communities or the governments, for that matter, are not being trusted. So there's an issue of, of, of trust there. There's an issue of uh, who actually gets the money. And then, uh, recently, uh, because a lot of the projects need expertise, so a lot of the expertise come from overseas, private companies. Let me give you one example. The, um, the Solomon Islands hydroelectric power station, funded by the uh, part of the money came from the uh, uh, Green Climate Fund. And uh, some of it came from private, uh, from the Asian Development Bank. Asian Development Bank already had a, an agreement uh, with, uh, with Korea. Any climate funding, which has to do with a public and private a partnership, should be given to uh, Hyundai. So the Hyundai uh, you know, uh, engineering company was very much involved. So a lot of corporations have come in. And basically what you're seeing here is a transfer of money from, from, from public finance into private hands. That's where a lot of money is going to. It's just like aid, New Zealand aid and Australian aid. Although they talk about uh, hundreds of millions of dollars going to the Pacific or going wherever. Uh, at the end of the day, it's the contractors who take the money. Um, so uh, that's one of the big issues. Do you, are you aware that there might be, you know, it's going to be a really big push to, to get some sort of um, money over and above it to to the developing countries? Different countries have their own needs. Different countries would make, uh, you know, in different regions of the world in, in terms of what they call it, uh, normally referred to as the national, national adaptation mitigation agenda. Yeah, certainly uh, the two major allocations for climate funding have been uh, on mitigation and adaptation. Uh, in the last few years, there's been more funding going to mitigation than adaptation. And in the case of mitigation, a lot of it was going into energy. And behind that are the energy companies themselves, uh, so that uh, they can be part of the transformation, uh, because a lot of the energy technology are held by companies. And, and uh, when you're talking about adaptation, a lot of the adaptation issues uh, have to do with the global South countries, including the Pacific and Africa as well. And uh, so there's been uh, there's been a call to increase the adaptation funding, but uh, at the same time, local communities are talking about not so much adaptation because when you adapt, you're basically trying to uh, respond to the uh, changes in the uh, to the conditions. Uh, when in fact, what has been uh, one of the big issues has to do with uh, resilience and how do they build resilience in the long term. And uh, it's not just to do with funding. In fact. A strong point of view, which is coming from a lot of global South countries. Yes, funding is important. Um, the funding at the moment is not sufficient. But also, how do you uh, create resilience within the community uh, in terms of uh, their lifestyle, in terms of the environment, in terms of their systems of housing and healthcare and support systems within within countries? <laughs> 